We're going to start a new teaching series this morning. I will tell you I won't get real deep into it today, but I want to at least kind of set the tone for what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. I was inspired to talk about this um, a few weeks ago. Um, There was a week that I was preaching over at uh, Central Campus when Pastor George was on vacation and Pastor Stewart was preaching here. And as he always does, he he and I, you know, when we're working on things together, he, he shared with me some of his, his notes that he was going to be preaching. And I was reading through it, and there was a, a paragraph in his notes that just jumped off the page at me about the five, there's a study done about the five, um, kind of the five indisputable, the five undeniable facts that even history, that history and the Bible both agree on when it comes to Jesus Christ. And I was reading through it and I thought, you know, it's going to be just kind of a little statement that he makes in the course of a sermon, but it just jumped off the page and something stuck in my heart. And I thought, I think that this is something that we need to talk about as a church. You know, really, the, who, was, who was Jesus and what should we do about it? And uh, I, we're going to dig into this more deeply over the next few weeks, really throughout the month of September. Now, now in his, his paper, um, his sermon, it said the five undeniable facts. And you will see, I know it says the four undeniable facts. And there's a reason for that. The reason there's only four weeks in September. And, uh, <laughs> and we just took the last two and combined them into one. So, you know, really, um, we're going to give you four parts of the message. We'll, we'll cover all the content we're just doing. That last, the last one is about the resurrection of Christ and in the actual five facts. One of them is about his resurrection and, and the fifth fact was about his appearance to Saul of Tarsus, which really has to do with his resurrection. So we're just going to bundle those up in the last part there. So I'm just kind of, there's not some super spiritual reason for this. It's not like Stuart and I think we know better than the guy who, who did this initial study, and we're going to just throw one of them out because it's really deniable, and we, we, we debunked it. But uh, no, we're, you're going to get everything, everything that was intended there. So here's what I want to ask you. What is the most important question ever? What's the most important question ever? If you could narrow all questions down in life to the most important one, I wish Paul Maldives had a microphone right now. I bet he's got about seven or eight that really are good to think about. But um, what is the most important question ever? I don't know that there's a conclusive answer to that. I'm obviously going to suggest one that I think it might be and build a case for it. But knowing that we're in church this morning, um, you might be moving your, your possible answers to something more spiritual in nature. And you might say... Um, are you saved or not? In other words, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know that you're going to heaven? Another, some of us might say, where are you spending eternity? Are you going to spend eternity in heaven or hell? And you might think that that is the most important question. And those are important questions, and there might be a case you can make for each of those. The one that I'm going to put forward that I think is the most important question in all of history for every human being ever is found right here in the passage that we're going to read this morning, is going to form the basis for why I think it's important for us to take a few weeks and talk about this. So I want to invite you, if you haven't done so already, to go into your bulletin, pull out that that folded sermon notes. You can follow along with me this morning. I want to read to you from the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament, one of the four Gospels of Jesus, the biographical accounts, the historical accounts of Jesus. This is the one written by Matthew, and he picks up on a conversation uh, between kind of a closed doors, behind the scenes conversation between Jesus and his disciples. This is not one that's necessarily happening in front of the people. This is one where they're digging in a little bit deeper. This is getting towards the end of Jesus' life on earth, getting closer to the cross, and he has this conversation about his identity. 
And so I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Just talking about himself. Who do the people say that I am? Well, they replied, Some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he digs a little deeper and Jesus says, then he asked them, but who do you say I am? This is the question I think is the most important question of all eternity that God is asking you this morning. Or maybe you might not be convinced that there is a God. I'm Phil Nauer asking you this morning. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, this next verse is a whole different message that we're going to be talking about in October because the question is, how did Simon know that? Who taught him? What class did he get that from? Did Jesus talk about that? How did Simon know the right answer? Here's what Jesus says. You're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. It was interesting. Jesus asks a question. Who do you say that I am? Simon's the one who speaks up. He gets the right answer, but Jesus says, you have the right answer. What's even more miraculous is you didn't get it from any human source. God revealed it to you. I think it would be fair to say, if you, stay, if you ask Simon Peter, how did you know that? He would probably say, I, I don't know how I knew that. I guess I just knew, which is very inexact language, and we'll talk about it in October when we talk about how to hear from God. But I want to go back to that again. I think the most important question in all of history is who do you say Jesus is? And the follow-up question is what should you do about it? Everything else about life, the afterlife, the way you live your life, the choices you make, really I could build a strong case that hinges on your answer to that question. And it all begins there. Who do you say Jesus is? And the second question after it is what, if anything, should be done about what you believe about Jesus? Whether you need to be saved or you don't need to be saved, it goes back to Jesus. Whether you believe in a God or you don't believe in a God, it has to do with Jesus. Whether you believe the Bible is all truth and it's authoritative or it's just a collection of good advice that you can pick and choose and cherry pick what you want to follow, it goes back to Jesus. So we want to take these next few weeks and look very closely at who Jesus is in this framework We're going to present you with four undeniable facts about Jesus Christ where both history, secular history, and the Bible agree. And then we're going to look at what the Bible says uniquely about Jesus and see if we prove it to be true, what does that mean? And if what the Bible says is not true, what does that mean? So we're going to bring you front and center to studying the person and the character of Jesus Christ. Not just that he was, but who he was and who you believe that he was and what decisions should be made about that really what we're talking about is a special word called theology. Now a watered down definition of theology is this. Theology is what you believe to be true about God and religion. Now there's all kinds of other definitions for theology. I'm going to work with that one. Theology is really just the collection of things that you, that you believe to be true about God and religion. Now here's the truth of the matter. You and I all have one. You have a theology. You have some things you believe to be true about God and about religion. Now, you might not have ever sat down and written it out. You might not have published it. You might not have ever thought about it concretely. I want to show you how I think about theology. And let me just be very clear. I did not get this from any other book or from any other person. If this makes no sense to you, it's no one's fault but mine. Okay? 
This is what I used to teach to first-year uh, correspondence Bible school, Bible school students who are in a school of ministry. Um, it has to do with something very spiritual. I call it Jenga. The game of Jenga. And right here in front of me is Jenga. Um, I know that kind of, if you don't know what Jenga is, that kind of sound, it's not a Ouija board. There's no demonic things attached to this. It's just a game with little planks. So please save your emails on that for later. But um, I was only kind of kidding about that statement. But really... Jenga is this really cool game, and I know you might not be able to see it well, and if you're listening to the podcast, you'll just have to Google it later, not while you're driving, but you might have to Google it later and look at what it is. Jenga is this game of, it's, it's this tower structure that's built out of planks, these little individual wood planks that look like this, and there are threes on top of threes on top of threes, and what you do in the game of Jenga is the object, and I'm not going to do it in front of you right now because I'm not very good at the game, is to remove a plank when it's your turn to take one plank out without toppling the tower, and then replacing that plank on the top of the tower without toppling it, and you go in turns until someone knocks it over, so it's really a feat for engineers and people like that. I am not such. However, I want to use this illustration of a tower of planks we're trying not to topple for a different reason this morning. I want you to think of this tower, as tall or short as you want it to be, represents your theology. This tower represents the collection of all the little individual planks that you believe to be true about God and about religion. For example, you might say, I believe the Bible trumps everything. I believe that the Bible is completely true. I believe there's nothing in there that's inaccurate. And not only that, I believe the Bible is authoritative. In other words, I believe the Bible is something that what it says, I am bound with a moral obligation to do. You might say, I believe the Bible trumps everything. You might say, I believe I'm saved through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You might say, I believe that if I die before I wake, I'm going to heaven. You might say, I believe that if I follow God, life will be good for me. You might say, I believe that if I follow God, that he does not, he wants, God wants to prevent bad things from happening to me. And then if I follow God, nothing bad will happen. It's interesting. Now, I've thrown a lot out there in just a few statements. I don't know if you've ever really sat down and thought seriously about those things. Can I invite you to do so? Pastor, I just have blind faith. I'm glad you have faith, but the Bible invites us to think about who God is because if you never think about it, your faith will not withstand the challenge when it comes because it will come. Uh, Was that Moses? Yeah, Moses could tell you about this when you have a little baby girl who's in the hospital on her second round of chemotherapy. Some of these things are gonna be tested and challenged. And you find out what your faith is really fast. When it comes to Jenga, uh, really, when it comes to your theology, there's two things you need to consider for every little plank that you believe. Number one, is it true? You might say, I believe it. Fantastic. Is what you believe true or not? Because if it's not true when it's challenged, it will fall apart. And everything else you've built on top of that one belief will also crumble with it. So the first statement thing you want to challenge, is it true? And the second statement is, and where on this tower do I place it? What other things do I believe that are based upon that thing? So is it true? And what effect does that belief have on everything else? For instance, you might say, I believe that the Bible is absolutely 100% completely authoritative and everything I believe Uh, Everything it says I should do. I will tell you where this is on my Jenga. It's on the very, 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 very bottom. So much so that if you prove the Bible is not true, all of my theology will crumble. Are you following me this morning? 
I believe the Bible is completely 100% true. Not only that, it is authoritative. It's not an option. I don't read the verses that make me happy and hold on to those and, and disregard the other ones. I believe it's all true. I believe it's all authoritative. And I built some of my other things on top of that. For instance, everything I believe about Jesus, I base on the Bible. If you prove the Bible's not true, what I believe about Jesus is now suspect. You put that on the bottom and you pull it out, the tower crumbles. So do I believe that it's true? I have to test it out. You might say, I believe I'm going to heaven. What about this one? I know a lot of people who believe this one. If I follow God, I believe no bad thing will ever happen to me. I believe life will be good for me. I believe God wants to prevent all bad things from happening to me. What happens is you take a statement like that and you accept it as true, and a lot of us put that on the very bottom of the tower. Well, how do I know where it is on my tower of theology? What happens when that one is challenged? Does the rest of your life fall apart? Do you stop worshiping God when you're having a crisis? Do you stop coming to church when things don't go well for you financially? Do you stop giving in your, of your tithes and your offerings when, when you don't feel like God is blessing you with promotions and raises? When you start believing that it is true that no bad thing will ever happen to me if I follow Jesus, you find out where that was in your theology. And if you put that way down at the bottom, this is why people get saved one Sunday, go home Monday, and find out there's still a devil out there. And then they, they have problems and difficulties. They decide salvation doesn't work and that God doesn't exist because they put this on the bottom of their theology when it never should have been there. It's interesting. It's a lot to think about. I will tell you why this is important. The Bible says that no other foundation can you lay than who? Jesus Christ. So I would suggest to you that if you make the Bible the foundation of theology, your understanding of who Jesus is and who he was is very essential to believing what you believe about God. I will tell you there is probably nothing more important in life for you to do than to think, listen to me, I don't have a lot of time this morning, I have to like boldface this statement. Is there anything more important in life for you to do than to think accurately about who God is? Think about that for a second. Is there anything more important to all of life and all, whether you believe in, in a God or you don't? Isn't it important to be accurate about that? Because if, in fact, God is not, then we best be accurate about it because this is all a hoax. I've given my life for nothing, and I hope that my belief about the existence of God and who He is is accurate. If, however, you believe that He isn't, you better be accurate about that. That better be the accurate truth. It is essential for us to think accurately about who God is and who His Son is. A.W. Tozer says this, Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Here's what Tozer's saying. If you could extract what you really think is true about God, we could predict with certainty your spiritual future. How you think about God and who you think Jesus was and how that translates into your life will determine with absolute accuracy your certain future. I'm just trying to build the case to you. We're not trying to waste your time for these next four weeks. There is nothing more important in life for you to settle down to what the truth is about Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to investigate it with me. I want you to look at it. Well, Pastor, I've already decided. I want you to look at it again. I want you to look at him again. I want you to look at him daily. And I want you to look into him. And I want you to invite yourself into the conversation of who is he and what does it mean in my life. The big idea is this. The big idea is that history does not dispute the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. It doesn't. History does not dispute the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. The true debate surrounds two questions. Who was he 
and what, if anything, should be done about it? The answers to these two questions will always be the defining issues of salvation and should form the foundation of your theology. The answers to the questions, who was Jesus and what, if anything, should I do about it? That should be at the bottom of your little Jenga tower. You might only say, well, Pastor, I only believe five or six things. I'm new to this. That's fine. As long as Jesus is at the foundation, you're ahead of most of us who think we know a lot. Because what you find is that, what I found is that the closer I got to Jesus, a lot of things I thought that I believed once they were challenged, I changed what I thought because it really was just based on what other people told me. I just took it and just ran with it. And then I challenged it like, that's not really who God is at all. But when those things were challenged, I didn't walk away from Jesus Christ. If you think that God heals you every single time you ask, then the next time you pray for your cold or your back or your arm and it doesn't repair right away, if it's on the very bottom of your theology, you start questioning whether God even listens to your prayers or not. The bottom line is that history does not dispute the existence of Jesus Christ. Or, or Je- oh, no, I said that wrong. They do not, history does not dispute the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. History would say he wasn't the Christ. But I want to be very, very, very clear about that last sentence on there. And I want you to listen closely to what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Who Je- the defining issue of your salvation or anybody else's salvation, listen carefully to me. The defining issue of salvation is who do you say that Jesus Christ is? It's not your morality. It's not your sexuality. It's not anything else. Those things fall afterwards. But the primary issue, the Bible says we are saved by grace through faith. Not by grace through faith plus works. Not by grace through faith plus sexuality. Not by grace through faith plus all these other things. First and foremost is do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? That's first and foremost. Now listen to me. And if I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's a transformation in my life and there should be some serious evidence about the way that I live. And that defines my sexuality, my views on marriage, my views on this and that and the other thing. Are you following me this morning? It's dangerous when we start trying to go back to the Bible and say we're going to lift this one or two issues up here and say these are really what determines whether it's how can you be saved and still be cheating on your taxes? How can you be saved and still be this or that or the other thing? Those are good questions, but the real question is do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's where it begins because if you don't have him living inside of you, you will not have the bandwidth to be able to transform from any of those other issues. Jesus does not ask us to get all cleaned up first so we can be savable. Amen? Are you hearing what I'm saying to you this morning? Don't get it twisted. It's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that first and foremost, and if you think that one of your friends is lost and on their way to hell, don't get angry at them. Pray for them and have love and compassion bubble up in your heart for them. That's what really is the mark of someone who follows Jesus Christ. They look at someone who might be lost and they have compassion. They have compassion. They have an urgency in their heart for them. So let, let, let's look at this a little more closely. Number one. Both the Bible and secular history teach teach that Jesus lived and he was Jewish. That's what we're doing here. That's why we say it's undeniable. We're looking at where the Bible and history would both agree. If if you came in here this morning and said, I doubt the truth of the Bible, is there any evidence to convince you that Jesus actually lived beyond what the Bible says? There are many people who think that if you can just debunk the Bible, then you can get rid of Jesus too. Unfortunately, you have a bigger problem than that because even if you take the Bible out of the picture, you have a lot of other historians who have written about the existence of the man named Jesus. Here's some of the things I want to present to you very briefly this morning. This will kind of come out like a fire hydrant. You might have to grab a little bit of it. But uh, the, the claim that Jesus actually existed 
is only challenged by skeptics who have determined to disbelieve any facts that would point to the validity of the Christian faith. It's important to remember that simply Googling something or looking on Wikipedia is not really doing the equivalent of actual historical research. In contrast, any serious student of history will concede that Jesus actually lived. Probably the most notable skeptic of the New Testament today is Dr. Bart Ehrman, a former Christian who rejects the inspiration of Scripture. Ehrman, as a historian, said the following, quote, Jesus existed, and those vocal persons who deny it do so not because they've considered the evidence with the dispassionate eye of the historian, but because they have some other agenda this denial serves. Here's a guy who says, I used to be a follower of Christ. I am no longer a follower of Christ. I don't believe this. However, as a historian who's really smart, I will tell you anybody who says he didn't live is not doing their due diligence. Let's summarize what some of the other historians have written about it. You have a a man named Josephus, or Josephus, depending on which pronunciation you want to follow. He was a first century Jewish historian who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and he wrote history. Uh, Josephus writes of a man named James, who was, quote, from Josephus' writing first, he says, James, the brother of the so-called Christ. So in the first century, Josephus, Josephus, writes of a man named James. He writes about James in a history book. And to describe him to his readers, to identify him, he says he was the brother of the so-called Christ. Now, who is he referring to? He's referring to the person that we would call Jesus Christ. However, he's very clear. This man thinks he was the Christ. I don't think he was the Christ, but he had a brother named James. Now, does the Bible reinforce this? Absolutely. We read in the Bible of James, who wrote the letter of James, who was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He grew up in the same home, shared the same dad, or shared the same uh, mom and dad. Jesus' biological father, of course, was God, was what I believe, what the Bible teaches. So you have Joseph who writes about him. Then you have another man named Lucian. He was a second century Greek satirist. And here's what he writes in his material from the second century. The Christians worship a man to this, worship a man to this day. The distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. It was impressed upon them by their original lawgiver that they are somehow all brothers from the moment that they are converted and they deny the gods of Greece and they worshipify this crucified sage and live after his laws. Here's what Lucian says. He's not a believer in Christ. But he says in the second century there's this group of people that call themselves Christians. And they're they're whacked because they are worshipping a man. Which is really weird. We worship gods. These Christians worship a man who is just nothing more than a wise sage who was crucified years ago. So by the second century, we already have another non-believer who writes that not only, was there a, not only was there a human being named Jesus Christ, but these weirdos are still worshiping him and they're denying our gods and they're living by what he said. So you have yet some more evidence there. Second, you have, you have things like, like Pliny and the Talmud who say that Jesus was a powerful and a revered teacher. You have Pliny, who was the Roman governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor, and one of his letters that we have that was dated to A.D. 112, he asks the emperor's advice about the appropriate way to conduct legal proceedings against those accused of being Christians. He says in his letter that he needed to consult the emperor about this issue because a great multitude of every age, every class, and every sex stood accused of Christianity. And at one point in the letter, he relates some of the information he learns about the Christians. Here's what he says. I'll read to you directly. Quote, 
They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and they bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it. After which it was their custom to separate and then resemble to partake food, but food of an ordinary innocent kind. Here's what he's telling us. He tells us a number of interesting things. First, we see that Christians by AD 112 were meeting on a certain fixed day for worship. Second, that their worship was directed to Christ, demonstrating that they firmly believed that this man Jesus was also divinely the Son of God, that was divinely the Christ. Furthermore, so there's a couple of scholars who interpret his statement that hymns were sung to Christ as to a God as a reference to the rather distinctive fact that, unlike other gods who were worshipped, Christ was a person who had actually lived on earth. And so if this interpretation is all correct, what, what Pliny was saying was that Christians were worshipping an actual historical person who they also thought was God. And of course, that agrees perfectly with the New Testament. There's a lot of other things that I could that I could bring for you here, but for sake of time, I mean, I could keep you here for the next four or five hours reading through to you all the other, what we would call extra-biblical, secular history that says the following. Jesus of Nazareth lived, and he lived at the same time period that the Bible says that he lived in. Number two, he was Jewish. Number three, he was thought of as a wise person. Number four, if you read more deeply into Josephus and even into the Talmud, you will see that they said he went around doing things. Uh, uh, I don't want to use the word miraculous because it's not their word, but there's another word that they use, uh, like some type of in it, like inexplicable feats. In other words, here's a guy walking around doing a bunch of other things um, that, that were hard to explain and that people didn't describe. So history and the Bible agree that Jesus was. History and Bible disagree on who he was. So I just want to say to you this morning, if you're skeptical and you think that Christianity invented the fairy tale-ish idea that a man named Jesus actually walked the earth, I will tell you that even secular history would disagree with you. The fact remains this man, Jesus, walked the earth and he lived at the same time period of the Bible. The debate is, do you accept what the Bible says about Jesus? If the Bible and history agree that he was who he was, really is the bait. The Bible teaches that he, was, that he was actually the Christ, that he was the Son of God himself, that he came from heaven to earth, took the form of a baby, took on flesh. He was the God-man, that he came to earth to die. He came to earth for one reason. He came to earth to die. He came to earth to die for your sins, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived the sinless life, that he died the death that we deserved, and that he defeated death and came to heaven. Over the next step, today we're looking at his life. Next week we'll look at his death. We'll look at his resurrection. We'll look at you know, his, his appearances. We'll look at all those different components of Jesus's life. We'll actually look at his life, his death, his tomb, and his resurrection. Those are the things we'll look at. But this morning, I just want to ask two questions and answer them real quick in your notes. Two possibilities here. Either what the Bible says about Jesus is true or it's not true. What if it's partially true? Then I reject all of it. (laughs) What good is it? If I have a house that has half of a good foundation, I'm not going to move my family in there. (laughs) It's reckless. It's foolish. So if Here's, here in your notes, if what the Bible teaches about the life of Jesus, that he was not, if what the Bible teaches about, I worded that kind of funky. If what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ is proven to be untrue, then it means that. In other words, if the, the Bible says that Jesus is the Christ, that he was the Son of God, the question I'm asking is, if what the Bible teaches about Jesus is proven to be untrue, what does that mean? In other words, can I put this belief about Jesus, Pastor, way up here on the top of my Jenga theology? And, and if it turns out that Jesus wasn't true, I still have salvation and I'm still going to heaven and my theology still stays in place. How important is it? Well, here's what it means if, Jesus, if what the Bible teaches is untrue. 
Letter A, the Bible cannot be trusted as an authoritative source of all truth. That's what it means. If Jesus walked the earth saying he was the Christ, the Son of God, like we say that he did, and like the Bible teaches that he did, and it turns out that that wasn't true, that he was in fact not the Christ, that he was not the Son of God, then the Bible has made up inaccurate information at its core, and you and I ought not trust it for another thing. Are you following me? Is anybody following me? Okay. Every now and again, it helps in the room because we have many, many, whether you realize or not, there are many, many, many people who come and they're just not sure that what we believe is the truth. I can be as excited as much of it as, as I can, but you can help me every now and again to make sure I'm not the only one believing it when I ask you to help me and say an amen. Amen? All right. Sorry, that's been bubbling up for about a year and now I've got it off my chest. I'm very, very, very restrained, but I'm about to lose that sometimes because I'm passionate about what I believe, and we don't have time to mince words. We don't have time to mince words. It's getting close, friends. We don't have time to mess around. Thank you. Thank you, Angie. <laughs> so you can't, here, here's the thing. I got to get this off my chest too because this drives me nuts. This is what I mean by the statement. You cannot, if you say that part of the Bible is untrue, then it is foolish for you to base the rest of your life on whatever remains. Let me, here's what, here's the thing that, 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 that kills me. I read a study, the Gallup poll, 2014. It says this, 24% of Americans as a whole believe that the Bible is completely true and authoritative. 76% don't believe it. Then they surveyed just people who say, I'm a born again Christian. 76% of born-again Christians believe that the Bible is 100% true. 24% do not believe it. Here's my question. If that means that one out of the four of us here this morning, if we really pinned you down, you'd say, I believe that the Bible is 100% true and it's authoritative, yada, yada, yada. Or, or, I, I believe that I'm going to heaven. I'm a born-again Christian. I believe that I'm going to heaven. I'm saved and I'm right with Jesus. I'm going to heaven. That's what I think I am. But I, I don't believe that the Bible is 100% true. You cannot take the part of the Bible that you want to believe is true, that if you die before you wake, you're going to go to heaven and reject the rest of it. That's foolish. You can't do that. You can't say, I want the part of the Bible that says I'm going to go to heaven and that I don't have to be anxious and that I'm saved and I don't have to worry about death and the afterlife, but I'm not going to let the Bible talk to me about my finances. I'm not going to let the Bible talk to me about marriage. I'm not going to let the Bible talk to me about, about all these other moral decisions that I have to make. I get to cherry pick and choose which of those things it has authority over, and I'm going to reject those, but I'm going to take the part that makes me feel good. You can't do that. You can't do that. It's either all in or all out when it comes to God. It's always been that clear. We need to, this wishy-washy Christianity drives me insane. How does an unbelieving world look at us? And we don't even, we can't even, we can't even agree in the house about what's true and what's not true. And yet we want to point our fingers and oh, it's the government's fault because they passed this law or that law. It's our fault. I don't expect the government to be God to me. And we got to, Christian, I love you. I love what you do and we pray for you. That's nothing on you, buddy. <laughs> Delegate in the house this morning, you know. Look, I don't expect Christian to be God to me. God is God to me. I have the Bible to tell me how I'm supposed to live and how I'm supposed to be. I don't pick and choose which parts I follow and which parts I don't. How, if you're not confident it's true, how, if you're not confident the whole thing is true, then how are you confident that the little parts you want to be right is right? Let's let you think about that for another week. Let's continue on. Letter B. If this isn't true, then Jesus did not come to earth to die to pay the debt for all sins. If you can say that, that Jesus wasn't the Christ and he wasn't the Son of God, guess what? You have no hope that he's your plan for salvation because he was just a confused man. 
If you say that Jesus was not the Christ, the Son of God, then he didn't, in fact, come to earth to die for your sins. He didn't, in fact, pay the penalty for us to have a relationship with God. It's very important for you to decide, is he just a man or was he the Son of God? Because you cannot say, I have confidence that he can save me if I doubt that he really was a Son of God. If he really wasn't who he said he was, if the Bible's inaccurate, then the plan of salvation that we presented for you is not true. Furthermore, letter C, then Jesus was, in fact, the most tragically deranged lunatic in recorded history. Think about it for a second. Think about this. He was convinced he was Christ, the Son of God. He was convinced of it, and he was murdered because of it. Now, I know there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there running around. Everything's a hoax. You can't trust anything. Sandy, Sandy Hook didn't happen. The Twin Towers came down as a false flag attack. You've got this new thing on TV. It's all a hook. And the Illuminati's pulling all the strings. It may, or may, it may or may not be. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to figure all that stuff out. I don't have time to go into YouTube and watch all of it. Here's what I know. You don't see people dying for a hoax. You don't see people say, I believe so much in this hoax being the truth that I'm going to put my life on the line for it. Jesus was so convinced he was the Son of God, he died because of it, and he had a chance to get out of it. So if, in fact, he wasn't the Son of God, he is the most tragically deranged lunatic in the course of history. Tragic because if it's not true, then he believed a lie that cost him his life. Letter D. Here's what it really means. If this isn't true, then Christianity as we know it is a complete fraud. Well, pastor, you could tell me that, and I read all the surveys about the percentage of Christians who don't even believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. I believe I'm going to heaven. I just don't believe Jesus lived a sinless life. So the sacrifice you think needed to be perfect so you can sleep at night and know that you went to heaven, you don't even think that it was perfect. That's foolishness. This is what an unbelieving world looks at us and says, see, you, you, Christianity is for the weak. It's for the uneducated. You people just believe in pie in the sky. There's no meat to it. There's meat to this. But you got to think. And you got to invest. God's not intimidated by you looking into who he is. He invites us in. You won't understand all of it. He's beyond all of it. But friend, there's enough meat there to make your heart come on fire for who he is. Oh, I just pulled a muscle on my back when I said that. I need to be more restrained. <laughs> That's why I try and just have a lot of fat and not a lot of muscle because you can't pull fat. It just, you know. <laughs> Number three, let's land the plane here. If what the Bible teaches about the life of Jesus, though, is in fact entirely true, if you can trust the Bible and if you will trust that, what the, here's what it means. Letter A, then Jesus came to earth for one reason and one reason only. He came to die. That's what it means. Why else would the Son of God leave where he's at and come to earth? He came to earth not to just to teach, not just to do miracles, because God in all of his infinite wisdom knew that we didn't need yet another teacher to save us from our sin. We didn't need yet another miracle worker. We needed a sacrifice. We needed somebody to come to earth and live a sinless life and offer themselves up as ultimate payment for everybody forever. And if what the Bible teaches about that is true, then guess what? You don't have to save yourself. Guess what? You don't have to make yourself perfect for God to accept you. If he came to earth for one reason and one reason only to die for you, then there is hope in Jesus Christ. He is the only way. If you take Jesus out of the equation, the Bible even says there is no salvation because he's, Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. The only way to God is through me. And if he did in fact come, then we have a pathway to being in right relationship with Jesus Christ. Letter B, what it means is if what the Bible says about Jesus is true, then Jesus really did live a sinless life and he really did die an undeserved death. If what the Bible says is true, then Jesus in fact did, he was tempted in every single way that you and I are, yet every single time he chose not to sin. If what the Bible says is true, 
then you can count on the fact that he did die and he did pay the penalty. And letter C, you can also count on the fact that anybody who believes in Jesus will be saved. If what the Bible says is true, then what the Bible says is we're saved by grace through faith and anybody who believes in Jesus will be saved. What that means is you don't have to have 1,500 planks that have been tested and true in order to be saved. You just have to have one that says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that I'm a sinner. And I believe that by faith in Him, through His grace, I can be saved. And if you've got those three, you've got everything you need. You've got everything that you need. As we close, I'll invite the worship team to come back. And I have a short video clip I want to show you. Before I get in trouble for it, let me tell you what and why. It's of Bono from U2. Let me be very clear. Just because I'm showing you a video clip for someone does not mean that Echo or I endorse all of his geopolitical views and that I'm putting him on a pedestal. He was in an interview. I've quoted from this interview before, but I actually found the interview. There's a minute and a half of it I want you to see. He was in an interview with a reporter who I don't want to say was being hostile, but they got onto the topic of Bono's faith in Jesus Christ. And the reporter, the journalist, was really digging in and asking Bono very, very, very specific questions, challenging his theology, and he was picking away at his faith. And he asks Bono the most important question ever. And I really was inspired by and appreciated his response how he responded. So I want to give you a chance just to look at this. It might be just an opportunity for you to think if I'm ever put on a spot to give a defense or an answer for why I believe Jesus is who he is, I think there's a lot that we can learn from it. So we're going to look at this. We're going to just look at this video real quick and then we're going to come back and pray together. So basically what the reporter says is, do you actually believe that Jesus was, this is not going to be nearly as good as Bono saying it. You you build build to the climax and the video doesn't work. At the end of the day, here's what he says. He says, I absolutely believe that he was the son of God. He said, here's what he says. Well, either he was the son of God or he was a complete nut. Like, just like that. Like, he's, he was a complete, and he goes on and he just says, look, here is a man who absolutely was 100% convinced that he was the son of God, and he died for it. And he said, so you believe that Jesus was the son of God? Bono says, yes, I do. He says, when you pray, who do you pray to? He says, I pray to Jesus Christ, the son of God. He says, do you believe he was actually the Christ? Yes, I do. <laughs> and he just rolls it right out there for him. Friend, I, I want you to understand it's extremely important for you and I to settle on who he was and what should be done as a result of it. I want to give you an opportunity to consider that this morning. So would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? In fact, as you do that, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come just so they can be prepared. And I know that, that Dr. Joe and Mark are going to, are going to pray over Sue. She has a, procedure coming, a surgical procedure coming up this week that we want to pray with her and just believe for God to touch her and, and to, to give her grace throughout that entire process. But with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to give you an opportunity to consider this. Who is Jesus to you? Do you believe what the Bible says about who Jesus was? Not that he was, because friend, that's a pretty much an undeniable fact. But who he was. Is he the Christ, the Son of God? If you would say, yes, pastor, I believe that, then my, my question for you this morning is, what have you done about that? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sins? Have you confessed your faith in him and put your faith in him so that you can live in right right relationship with God, so that you are on your way to heaven, so that you have the spirit of God living in your life, transforming you day by day? 
If you'd say, Pastor, I do believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and I do believe what the Bible says about him. I might not be able to build a whole nice Jenga tower like what you did, but I believe that much, but I've never confessed my faith in him. Friend, can I invite you to take that step this morning? Because at the end of the day, we can believe all we want to believe, but if we don't confess and we don't take action, it's not enough to move us into relationship with God. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. I want you to be saved this morning. So if that's where you're at today, you can pray a simple prayer that just simply says, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe what the Bible says about you, and I believe what the Bible says about me. I believe I need to be saved. I believe I need to be forgiven. I believe I've fallen short of the standard Jesus that you set for me when you lived here on the earth. And so I confess that I believe in you. I repent of my sins, and I choose you to be my Lord and Savior, and I follow you with my life. And friend, just that simply, without any debate, without any paperwork, without any online applications, Jesus accepts you. He saves you. He sent his spirit. He's breathed his spirit right now that's living inside of you. All of your sins and all of your past are forgiven to be brought up to your, to your account no more. And you're free in Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing.